So uh, what happened after the book came out, uh, this uh, Voices in Harmony? Well, that was kind of the beginning of the last six years of um, being pretty public and having a lot of media interviews. And we do have a message that we would like to get out, and that is that we would like to have people understand our lifestyle better, show an element of respect and understanding, and eventually have it decriminalized. We feel like if it's between consenting adults and all the parties are in agreement, we're not doing anybody any harm. And certainly with all the alternative lifestyles that are out there today, this is certainly one that ought to be considered as legitimate. Recently I read a newspaper article that said there are more alternative lifestyle, uh, people living in alternative lifestyles, than there are in the nuclear family, which is a husband, a wife, and two or three kids. That means that there are more families that are maybe single parents, there may be gay couples, there may be divorced, widowed, a grandmother raising a grandchild, polygamous, all these I categorize as alternative lifestyles as compared to the nuclear family. Well, if there's more of the alternative lifestyle people now than there are the others, I think that's important for people who are making laws and dealing in social services and things like that to understand that they cannot put everybody in the same box that they have to understand there's a lot of diversity in the people and in different families in America. So because of that, I feel like people need to understand that ours is a viable family lifestyle, that we, in most cases, assume responsibility for our families. This lifestyle is all about families, after all. It's having children and bringing up uh, righteous children, if possible. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a challenge for any parent, I'm sure. Yeah. But um, So we have tried to get this message out that um, we should not be criminals. We should not be considered as felons, which in the state of Utah we are uh, if we're taken to court. But um, we shouldn't even really be guilty of a misdemeanor unless we're breaking some other law. Like if some families are guilty of welfare fraud or forced marriages or uh, any kind of abuse, then naturally those issues should be addressed. And the Attorney General in the state of Utah, Mark Shirtliff, has been very good to separate the crimes from the culture. And just because somebody is living in plural marriage doesn't mean they're criminals. So we have worked with him on the safety net committee and fortunately they have consulted with us to understand our communities better and our lifestyle and beliefs so they're better able to make uh, the best um, decisions about our culture. They're able to provide the services that we are entitled to. And um, our motto is do nothing about us without us. Right. So here they were building uh, committees, they were considering laws and all that, and we weren't even, our voice wasn't even heard. But now, in, thanks to Mark Shirtliff and Paul Murphy in the AG's office, they have included us in these committee meetings. And uh, we're very glad for that because I think it, it builds confidence and trust in both sides. We're able to help our own people understand, you know, there are services that you qualify for. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you need to know how to go about applying for those. And the government is not necessarily an enemy as long as you're not breaking any other laws. And on the other hand, we tell the government officials, okay, we're not criminals by nature. We do not believe in abuse or forced marriages or those stereotypes that some people associate with polygamists. They're certainly not true across the board. Let's talk about that. Um, I would love you to characterize um, two things. One is polygamy gone wrong, which is what are the things that you would say 
what, you know, there are a lot of stereotypes uh, about fundamentalist polygamists, and you know, I have, I have a bunch of them here that people, like you said, forced into marriages, that people live too much off the government, there are welfare issues, that that there's um, people's wives are taken away from them and reassigned to others. Um, you know, there are even crazy allegations of animal sacrifice and mm -hmm. and and stuff like that. Tell me, uh, and underage and, and incest, tell me, paint a picture for me of what polygamy gone wrong is, if you're able to. I don't want you to offend anybody, but okay. what, would, what would, paint a picture of polygamy gone wrong, and then counterpose that with polygamy gone right, gone right. from <laughs> your perspective, from your okay. perspective. Polygamy gone wrong is when there's unrighteous dominion. I think you can just narrow it down with that. Whether it's the husband of the family, whether it's a leader in a group, whatever, if he exercises unrighteous dominion over the people that he, are under his stewardship, then I feel like that's when these other things can enter in. Um, if there's free agency and the desire to obey the laws, not only the laws of the Lamb, but God's laws. I mean, uh, child abuse is certainly not, is it's breaking one of God's laws. Uh, abuse of, of any kind, uh, whether it's welfare or family members or anything like that, naturally we feel is an incorrect uh, process, procedure. Um, I think in the case of that you're talking about, those things that you mentioned, they have existed to my knowledge in one or two of the groups. There have been incidences of that, but I hope people understand there's so much diversity in our lifestyle and families that that is not the case in in a lot of the families that I'm aware of. Um, the FLDS, under the leadership of Warren Jeffs, this is once again an unrighteous dominion situation as far as I see it. There's a man that likes the power, uh, has exercised maybe control that I feel is inappropriate, in my personal opinion, um, and so, therefore, he has uh, taken families, split families apart, um, taken the man away from his wives and children. In some cases, I understand maybe the man was so um, dictatorial that the women asked to be taken away from him. I don't know all the details of those families down there. But it just seems to me there are some inappropriate things that have happened in that particular group. And that seems to be what the media has picked up on over the years is those situations. That is not the general rule in most of the other groups or the independents. We have our free agency, and it's interesting, and when we did our book, we sent out a questionnaire, and one of the questions was, um, uh, let's see, the point I was getting at was, oh, how many children in your, adult children in your family entered the principal? And you'd think that if a family uh, was really strong in this lifestyle, that their children would stay in it as well. To me, the response came back about a third to a fourth of the of the adult children. Now, people might think, well, gee, that's a low number. You know, why weren't there more of them? To me, that says that those children being raised by th public schools and all the influences in the outside world, at least they were given their free agency and they were not forced to, to live it if they didn't want to. Now in the FLDS community down in Hildale, Colorado City, I'm sure the percentage is much higher because there they're not even supposed to associate with people outside their community and they are most of the time placed in a plural family or told who they should marry by Warren Jeffs or the leader of that community. 
And I think this is a case of one man having a lot of, of authority and power over the people. And one of the reasons why Centennial Park, um, they split from uh, the FLDS people was because they wanted a council rule. They didn't want that much power invested in one man. So they um, formed another community or group, if you want to call it that, in about 1986, which was, a cent that's why they called themselves Centennial Park, 100 years after the 1886 revelation to John Taylor. Mm. So uh, they wanted the council rule, and then FLDS kept with the Munwan rule, and that was a real source of um, contention uh, between those people. So they resolved it in that way. Um, so I think the, the idea of um, polygamy gone wrong would stem mostly from unrighteous dominion. And, and breaking the law? Uh, the, yeah, breaking laws that really should be kept, laws of God or laws of man. Now, I understand we're breaking the laws of the land by living plural marriage. That's why we want to get it changed. We'd like it to be criminalized. We'd like the Reynolds decision of 1879 to be overturned, which said that you could believe what you wanted, but you couldn't practice it, referring to plural marriage. So there's some legislation now and some cases that are coming up that we hope at least one will go before the, U the uh, United States Supreme Court where that might be overturned. So there are things in the mill where we're hoping that that can be changed. What about lowering the marriage age? Well, no, I think it ought, just generally speaking, and I can't speak for everybody, but I think generally speaking 18 is a good age and that is the legal age for it. Uh, we recommend to the people as we talk to them in our own lifestyle that it would be wise, if possible, to we make sure that the boys and the girls both are at least 18. So, um, and that's certainly what the Attorney General recommends. <laughs> how, so. how do you, how does a community deal with the dynamic if they're practicing polygamy um, of there being too many men? Uh, you know, some well, you have know. said it seems to be an impractical practice because you got too many men and yeah you but know. you're looking at such a small percentage of the population in Salt Lake in Utah in the United States it just isn't really a problem because um, even though I think birth rate is pretty well like 50 50 51 49 whatever um, it, we're talking about such a small percentage of that that it just hasn't been a problem I know there are some men uh, that would like to have more wives, but you know, it's not typical for a man to have more than two or three. That's the average. And when we sent out that questionnaire, that's what came back. The average number of wives in a plural family is around two or three. The, you do hear of some of the leaders having more than that, or some of the men maybe having a few more than that, but that's not the general rule. So logistically, it's just not that difficult to... Um, have more wives. Only when you're in a mm -hmm. contained society. Like that may be a problem and that's where incest I think has come in because um, I know in one or two of the groups they have married cousins and half-brothers or sisters or something like so that, which is not something that I myself would do, but um, I'm, I'm not going to judge them for their decisions. Mm. I mean you look at the beginning and Adam and Eve, I mean they must have married brothers and sisters uh, and, in, and even in cousins in Old Testament times. So, and a lot of the states in the United States, it's not against the law to marry first cousins. So your definition of incest is going to, mar is going to vary from state to state. Mm. Okay. 
So now tell us about polygamy gone right. <laughs> and when, sure. you know, even when cohabitating even is involved, you, you know, you gave us an example of how it can work and maybe even a bit easier when, when the wives live in separate houses. Tell us about polygamy gone right. Paint a picture for us. Okay, about there's so many women that I know that this is a, just a wonderful lifestyle for them. They've freely chosen it. Uh, one experience that I think of every once in a while when I think of a plural family is this one girl that I know very well. She was raised in polygamy. Her father had a few wives. They all lived close together but in separate homes. She always knew where her dad was. She could come home from school, and if she needed her dad for something, she could go over there. She was always welcome in, in any of those homes. And she could sit down, if, if he was free, just like any father, and, and have time with him. And the way she described it, and so back um, backing up a little bit, so because of her happy childhood, she wanted that same happiness for her children. So she is a plural wife, very happy in it. Her kids were raised with a, a loving mother and a father and several mothers. Um, and the way she termed it was that there were more people for her to love and more people that loved her. So it's it's really a matter say of that love. One more, say that family. one more time. I'm sorry. Okay, there's more people for her to love. Uh -huh. There's more mothers and siblings, and there's more people to, to love, love her. her. Okay. So really, a plural family is about um, family love. Siblings, a lot of times siblings are best friends. Whether they go to private school or home school or go to public school, many times they have siblings the same age, and they're their best friends. Does a child of, of one wife call the child of a, of a sister wife uh, brother and sister? Oh, yes, usually. Yeah, okay. they don't distinguish in most cases like half-brother, half-sister. This is my brother, and some of them might say, well, his mother is Aunt Susie or something like that. But a lot of them, they just call, uh, and some of them call him Mama, Mom, Susie, or just Mom, or whatever. They have their own ways of identifying uh -huh. each other. Sure. Okay. In the early days of the church, I think they were called Aunt. You know, like uh -huh. Aunt Jane, and meaning a sister wife. Okay. But I wanted to get back to, to after our book came out, and um, we realized that we... It was really interesting to see how thirsty the media was for somebody on the positive side of plural marriage to explain it. They just absolutely thought this was wonderful. So because of that, um, a couple of us decided, well, it was a, a gentleman, decided that he would like to work with me in putting out a book, a magazine called Mormon Focus, which we did. And that is uh, right here. It was just one issue. The premier issue, and it came out in 2003, and it shows three sister wives on the cover. And um, we were hoping to have it come out like bi-monthly or quarterly, but after uh, setting this up and getting it published, we didn't get the financial support we were hoping for. So it was just the one issue, but it really stands alone. It has articles in there, like one article is about three different polygamous families and how each one dealt with the challenges and the family problems and everything that came up and the rewards as well. And they were different ages, different uh, dynamics in the family. Uh, another one uh, talked about uh, the manifesto. Another one article talked about the different diversities um, of the groups, 
called Community Focus, and it tells a little history of the different groups and independents and so forth. So um, that has served as a good tool, like if we go out doing a presentation up at a university, for example, in a class, we'll hand out complimentary copies because we've paid for the printing expenses now. And uh, when we do a presentation for a social services department, uh, we'll be able to hand those out so that they can read for themselves a little bit more about the, the lifestyle. So um, then after the magazine came out, uh, the three of us that wrote the book, plus another girl, um, Linda Kelch, um, decided that we needed to be kind of an organized entity so that when people referred to us, they would have a name by which we should be known. So we called ourselves First Principal Voices of Polygamy. And uh, about a year or two ago, we decided to drop the polygamy part and just say principal voices, principal meaning the principle of plural marriage or a matter of principle, you know, a principle to live. So since then, uh, we have worked with, like I say, the Attorney General's Office, different government agencies. We've done a lot of presentations for social services groups and uh, college classes. Um, we have been a resource for people who are writing articles or books or doing TV documentaries. Um, it's just been a voice that we felt had not been heard before. So now um, we're glad that people are willing to listen and learn more about us. And what we eventually hope is that people will understand our lifestyle a little better and treat us with respect. After all, many of the people in the LDS Church had ancestors that lived this lifestyle. Yeah. And uh, of all people, it ought to be understanding of that. It's it's yeah. people in the church that had those sure. kind of ancestors. Sure. What um, do you have a sense for how many people are are living under polygamy today in the United States? Do you even have a in the United, <coughs> excuse me, in the United States, I've heard the figure a hundred thousand, but that includes Christian polygamists, secular, Muslim, Jews, Mormon you know, mm. priesthood Mormon, polygamists. So there's all kinds of polygamists. They don't necessarily live it or believe in it as a religious belief, but as a cultural um, lifestyle. Over about three quarters of the countries in the world, it's not against the law to live polygamy. But mm. of course it is in the United States. But... Um, so because of that, I think that it's necessary for people to understand we're not the minority, really. I mean, the people that actually practice it might be. Um, but as far as those who stem from early Mormonism, I did a survey on that oh, a couple of years ago and came up with a figure of about 37,000. Mm -hmm. And that include included 15,000 independent fundamentalists, 8 to 10,000 FLDS, 7,500 all-red group, 1,500 Centennial Park, 1,500 Kingstons, and 1,500 that were just members of uh, uh, some smaller groups. So uh, out of that 37,000, however, a lot of them are children, and a lot of them have a belief in it but aren't necessarily practicing it. So it doesn't mean that there's 37,000 actual adults living in a plural family. Right. So do you have a sense for, you know, you talked about sort of polygamy gone wrong and polygamy gone right. Do you have a sense for what percentage of those who are living in it are doing it right versus the oh, more negative stereotypes? I would certainly hope that there's well over 50% <laughs> that have done it right, but I have no way of knowing that because, um, well, to begin with, there's a lot of people down in the Colorado City Hilldale community 
that I think probably are very happy. Uh, but I have no way of knowing that because they've been so isolated and secluded. So as a spokeswoman, you're not able to communicate with those groups to make not sure they're... Not that one group. And spokesperson is lose, use it very loosely okay. because I am not a designated spokesperson for these groups. Okay. I have worked with a lot of them, and we do have a coalition committee now that has representatives from all the groups except FLDS. So FLDS just wants nothing Say to do They with have been invited to participate with us, and they have chosen not to. Okay. So I do not know firsthand too much of what's going on down there, although I have talked to some people that have left. But, um, but the but other people that I know and the other groups, they're going to have problems in a monogamous marriage. So you're going to have problems in a polygamous marriage, maybe even a few more in some cases. But most of the people that enter into this with a full knowledge of the fact that there's going to be more than one wife and with a knowledge that it's a religious principle and that God is a part of their relationship, they know that ahead of time and so they're willing to make sacrifices and overcome the jealousy and the problems that might arise because they're familiar with it ahead of time. So as far as polygamy gone right, I would certainly hope that in most cases it's well over 50%, but I have no way of knowing for sure. But in your experience, the extreme negative things that are emphasized in the media aren't the norm or typical for for the people that you've come to know? No, absolutely the, not. Because they're, no, the, they're, right, they're focused on, a lot of them, FLDS. And, uh, you know, that's maybe happens down there. Um, but as far as... Um, numerically, they're less than a third. Yeah, absolutely. Pro probably, probably about a fourth. Okay, okay. Third to a fourth. And uh -huh. they sort of, I don't want to put you on record, but they kind of give polygamists a bad name, maybe. They do because that's the only information that the media has been picking up on for years. And our voice, even though it's coming out more and more now, it's still baby steps. And they love to pick, the media loves to pick up on the sensational. Sure. The Warren Jeffs trial now coming up and all that. It just focuses on a lot of the negative that happens in the lifestyle. And certainly, you know, a happy family, that's not newsworthy. What do you report on if it's a happy family? I think Big Love has done a lot to um, dispel some of the stereotypes. And I was glad when we started watching that. The only thing is the first two episodes were a little... Uh, too intimate for our taste, um, but um, I feel like it showed the diversity in our culture that you have, a, for example, a plural family that lived in a um, an average neighborhood, a little above average, they had a swimming pool in the backyard with the three wives living next to each other, and then they also showed a, an isolated community that had a very strong leader and had maybe evidences of abuse. So, so you have to see the dynamics of all different kinds of um, variety that, of people that live this lifestyle. I, I, I forgot to ask you this. Did you continue to attend the LDS Church throughout your... I did for a long time after. And then there came a point where we had a lot of company because of the books that we were writing. We had a lot of company and the best day for them to come was on Sunday. So it seemed like my time was better spent talking about the principles of the gospel that we believed in than going and listening to classes on following the leader leader and what we term the milk of the gospel, which I'm not saying isn't important, but I felt like my time was better spent talking about things that I could not learn in church. 
But at least for 10, 15 years, you continued? Oh, yeah, I continued going. I wanted my kids to be raised in the church, and so I went as long as they wanted to go. So they were raised in the church? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Your children? Right. And well, they, when they got to be teenagers, they themselves chose to be inactive. All three of them? Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you have a sense for how, you know, you talk about independent polygamists, is that right? Uh-huh. Do you have well, a sense? independent fundamentalist Mormons. Independent. Independent fundamentalist Mormons. <laughs> we're all fundamentalist I'm Mormons. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And we're, no, that's okay. I'm, I'm, we consider ourselves to be independent where the others are in groups. Okay. Do you have a sense for how prevalent um, independent fundamentalist Mormons are in Provo or in Salt Lake City? Oh, by area? No. I think probably most of them are in the Salt Lake area. But I know of some in Provo and... Um, all over because we had so many people come and visit us that were interested in Ogden's books and in the discussions that we had they believed in those early doctrines so in belief at least they were a fundamentalist Mormon. And do you sense that that they live in arrangements much like yours and Ogden's were that, that the wives live in separate houses? Oh, and if they're independent some of them uh, just the same some of them live in separate houses some of them might like live together do you, do you have a sense for how common it is for them to still attend LDS church wards? Well, if they do, they've had to do it very quietly without saying how they believe. So if they go to gospel doctrine class, they don't say, oh, but in section 132 <laughs> it says, you know. Yeah. So um, I imagine there are some that attend church I, and believe in the early doctrines, but they go along with the church for whatever reason to whatever degree. Maybe they want their kids to go to primary and be raised in the church, so they're very careful about what they say to enable them to do that. Or maybe they can see a lot of good in the church that they want to take advantage of, but then their private beliefs might be different. Do you have a sense that that's the exception for independence? or the Oh, moral? yeah. I think most people, if they're a fundamentalist Mormon at all, they are not members of the church they, as a whole. I, yeah. But I don't know them all, so I don't know for sure. But I would say that most of them get to a point where they can no longer support the teachings and the leadership of the LDS church, and so they are eventually, either they ask for their name to be taken off, or they are discovered by something they say or did, and they're excommunicated. What's, what's kept this group from banding together and trying to form a church? Well, that isn't the... We're told not to do that. Who? In 1886, um, when John Taylor had the revelation and t told those men to keep plural marriage alive, told them that that was um, a commandment from God, uh, somewhere along the line, they were instructed not to congregate, proselyte, collect tithing, you know, form churches that their commission was solely to keep plural marriage alive. That's the way I believe. Now, if you talk to some people in some of these other groups, they vary in that because they feel like there was a definite council, priesthood council that was formed at that time and that they were to do the things that the church did not do correctly. But my understanding of it is that the main thing they were commissioned to do was keep plural marriage alive, not form a church.